All right, well, welcome to our final class on the book of Daniel. Um, we've walked through a lot of scripture, a lot of information uh, from the beginning years of Daniel as a, an exile from Judah and Jerusalem into Babylon. And then, of course, later on he got into, he was... He was in leadership there, and then later on, um, the Medo-Persian Empire took over. And uh, that's actually where we are tonight as we finish out the study. Uh, last week's study, for those of you who were here, was on Daniel 9. We just did one chapter because it was such kind of a, a beautifully thick chapter of information, um, most notably the 70 weeks prophecy. If you, haven't, if you haven't learned about that, that prophecy, if you have not been exposed to that, just strongly suggest that you check out that study or just check out any other um, studies on Daniel 9 uh, because they're so, they're so important to understanding the prophetic aspect of like, for example, when Jesus would come and that that was a fulfillment of prophecy and when Jesus would enter the, the holy city on that, uh, on that Palm Sunday, which was, which was we, as I showed last week. So anyhow, just uh, an encouragement to do that. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll jump into Daniel chapter 10. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you to inspire us, Lord. We need you to teach us. We need you to give us peace, and we need you to move in our lives. Tonight, Lord, as we study your word, Lord, would you, would you take a word and make it alive in us, Lord? That, that living word, uh, that, that living word that comes in, right, between soul and spirit. And when you come in and, and, and cause us to, to grow and to soften and to mature and to surrender, Lord, to you. Please guide this study, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So three chapters, that's a, that's a lot of information as you could probably surmise. Um, but it's all kind of connected because it's all like this last giant vision that Daniel is given. I won't be able to cover every single corner of every single detail. Um, so let's jump in. Daniel chapter 10, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. That's a particular area where they have mined gold from. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. We'll stop there. 
So this is a vision that Daniel is being shown. And it is, again, is during the time of, the, of, the, of, the, uh, of Cyrus, which is, of course is during the Medo-Persian um, Empire. And we read that Daniel is, he's mourning. And the question often comes when people are studying this is like, well, okay, why is he mourning? Why three weeks? Um, and what does this have to do with, you know, this and this person that he this 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 person that he sees? What is that all about? So let's let's uncover this a little bit. First of all, last week we studied how Daniel was reading in the prophet Jeremiah, and when he was reading that, he came to an understanding that the seventy years of exile that the Jewish people were in when they were taken to Babylon, was about to end. God had told them that they would be sent into exile, but it would be for a specific length of time, a 70-year period. And he realized that that period was coming to an end. And by this time, the 70 years have ended. By the time the Medo-Persians have taken over, this is about four years actually after the timing of uh, the prophecy of Daniel 9. I'm sorry, actually, it's actually two years after that. Um, and by this time, the Jews have actually begun to go back to the promised land. But an interesting thing, if you read in the other accounts, biblical accounts of the exiles going back, those would be the books of the Old Testament of like Ezra, Nehemiah. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll read and you'll understand that the Jews, when they got permission to go back or when those seven years were ended, they didn't just flood the place like, okay, sayonara, suckers, we're going to go back, you know, finally. It was like a kind of a trickle. And when they went back, it was not only was it a trickle, but it was like, it was really hard. They faced all kinds of problems uh, in the rebuilding process of Jerusalem and the temple and, and the walls, all this stuff, excuse me. And so the idea is that Daniel, who at this time is probably about 84 years old, or as we like to say it now, 84 years young. That's an interesting thing that's happened in our time. He's about 84 years old, and he is mourning for three weeks. And the idea is that most likely he has heard of the troubles of the people. He has heard that not many of the people have returned. And he's like, what's going on? And if you were in his position, right, having served in a foreign land for 70 years, finally seeing the end of it, having received this giant, this vision of the, the 70 weeks and this kind of, this idea of the hope of the Messiah. And then you see these people who are your brothers and sisters finally get permission to go back and they're not taking it. And the idea is most likely that Daniel is wrestling with why is this happening? And it's the same way that you and I wrestle with that question of why in our lives. Is there any more common question that people ask as they walk through this life than why? <laughs> why did that happen? Why is this going on? Why did that occur? Why didn't this happen? The second most popular question is probably when, but why is definitely the big one. And so he's wrestling. He's, he's, he's taking three weeks of mourning. He's not, he's, and he's practicing self-denial, right? 
no, no, no wonderful food, no meat, no wine. He's not anointing himself. And as he does this, on the 24th day, so after three weeks, he sees a vision of the man. And many people ask, who is this man? And I'll tell you, quite honestly, we don't know for sure. There are some who say that this is a vision of Jesus, that he sees Jesus, because it's very similar to other prophetic um, uh, descriptions of Jesus that you see in like the book of Revelation, for example. But as we're going through the rest of this chapter, you'll, you'll understand why it's a little bit hard to determine exactly that is. Most likely, this is either Jesus that appears for a short time and then we don't see him again, or it is some kind of angelic being that is maybe similar as far as the, the, the appearance of kind of like this kind of royal, amazing appearance. But anyhow, let's continue on. So he describes the man in verse six. He says, the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground." And suddenly, verse 10, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, so this man speaks, oh Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. And here we're given a little bit of insight as to what was going on in those that morning, those three weeks. What was he doing? He was doing two specific things. One he set his heart to understand. And this is one of the elements that, of course, possibly connects very well with the idea of him wrestling with the idea of, are the exiles going to go back? And what's happening to them as they go? And then worrying about his people. But I love the fact that his, his posture before the Lord has so much to tell us about the attitude of our hearts as we approach God in prayer, as we approach him on our knees, as we approach him following these this question that we all have, the why. What did he do? Did he set his mind or his heart, does it say, does he set his heart to question? No. Did it set his heart to accuse? No. He set his heart to understand. Now, we know this about God. God loves this. God loves when people prepare themselves and they say to God, Lord, I don't understand. I have the why. I have the question. I have the thing. But I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow. I'm setting my heart to understand. Teach me. That is an incredible, incredible thing. Teach me. Teach me. 
say this, pray this, talk this to the Lord as you read his word. Before you crack, you crack this thing open in the morning, you know, you're not quite awake yet, the coffee's not quite kicked in, you know how it goes. Teach me. Right? Set your heart to understand. And then he does the second thing. You set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God. And he also positioned him, teach me, which of course, teach me is a humbling position. You, you can't learn something unless you admit from the get-go that you don't have the answer. How much more would happen in any kind of classroom or even ch- church setting every Sunday if every person who came in the room was just, that, was just on their knees, Lord, teach me. Lord, teach me. You know what would happen in the church? Incredible growth. Not just numbers or something like that, but like growth of people. Who are we inside? What's going on in our hearts? What's going on in our minds? He humbled himself. He set his heart to understand. And it says, because your words, I have come because of your words. How beautiful is that? That sentiment, I have come. As an angelic messenger, or even a, a, a pre-incarnate Christ has come. Why? Because of his words. Our words and our posture before the Lord have, have power. And yeah, he continues on in, in verse 13. He says, but, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. Now there's a lot in there. Verse 13 and 14, so let me unpack it. First of all, we're given a really amazing insight into the spiritual reality that is around Daniel and around us all the time. I'm not sure how much you've been taught about these things, about angelic beings or and, and, and demons, which are basically fallen angelic beings, but that there's a spiritual reality that is at work in our world, though unseen, as far as unseen, as far as what we see the actual beings, but we see the conflict, we see the problems, we see the, the errors, the temptations, that are the fruit of the fact that there is this warring aspect of what's going on in the heavenly places. So I wanna just teach you and show you a couple things that I think are really, really important here. First of all, please turn with me in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians, chapter six, verse 12. This is in the famous pa- uh, passage about the whole armor of God. And in verse 11, as you're turning there, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The whole armor of God in order to stand against the wiles of the devil. That tells you right there that the devil is able to impact your life. Now, if you're a born again believer, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord, you are, you've been given the Holy Spirit, you are sealed. 
No one can take that away from you. But Satan can get right up close (laughs) and mess with you. He can't take your salvation from you, but he can mess with you. Think about the servant Job, for example. In verse 12 of Ephesians 6, it says, for we, after putting on the whole armor of God, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, and this is, of course, the reason why it's a spiritual armor that is mentioned, or as as Pastor Aaron has talked about with the armor bear, right? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And there's two, there's two ways that you can understand this. You can understand that these are just kind of adjectives describing the same thing, or rather, what I think is more accurate, that this is actually describing a hierarchy within the spiritual realm. That just as within, um, within, within armed, armed forces or, or at a school, you have a principal, you have a, an assistant principal, and then you have your teachers. And, and within, the, within armies and, 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 and the Navy, you have, you have generals. And then you have, uh, what, captains after, I, I, I've never, I was, no, colonels, okay. I, was, I never memorized that list of the hierarchy of that, so. But anyhow, good, I understand what it is, of course. Um, so in the same way that there are principalities, powers, and then rulers. There's a different, there's a hierarchy of these things. And there's a hierarchy both on the good side as well as on the bad side. You just read a passage where a, 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 this, this man was speaking and he says, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes. Now, Michael is, is called in the Bible an archangel. That means above. He's probably a kind of a general kind of angel. And as we'll see more and more, very often when you see and read about Michael, Michael, you can kind of ascertain this from scripture, although it doesn't explicitly say this, that Michael is kind of the, the prince or the one who's watching over the nation of, of Israel. And we'll see why that's important to our discussion here. It's very possible that this other person here is, and I'm pretty sure it's Gabriel, actually, from, and we'll read that in just a moment. Gabriel usually shows up when there's stuff dealing with Jesus and the Messiah. Gabriel was the one who gave the announcement to Mary in Luke chapter 2. He was also part of the Daniel 9 prophecy. So there are principalities, there are, there are, are generals on the good side, and there are also generals on the bad side. Notice what it says there back in Daniel 10. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, what this is probably saying is that in the, in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual reality, that over nations or over regions, whoever is a leading power, remember at this time, Persia was like the main, uh, the main force, in, in the, at least in the, in the Middle Eastern world at this time, and he says there is a prince of Persia. Most likely that means there's a kind of a demonic power or a, 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 a high demonic power. And there are levels of like, you know, senior devils, junior devils. I don't know if you've ever read the book by C.S. Lewis. Um, oh, what's the title? I've forgotten the title. Screw tape letters. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I remember reading that when maybe I was like a year or two into following Jesus and it like shook me 
for a variety of reasons. One of the one was just conviction for, for a variety of things. Is like, oh, you thought the way I thought, and then whoa, 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 you know, he kind of revealed things about myself. That was fantastic. But in that book, which is a, is a it's a fictional book, but it describes a kind of a a senior um, devil instructing a junior. You know, and it, of course, it's not it's it's not something that is a it's not a biblical text, but it helps us to see what the biblical text does reveal, which is this idea of hierarchy. So notice here, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, let's connect the dots. How many weeks is 21 days? Three weeks. How long was Daniel in mourning? Three weeks. Do you think that's a dink? I don't think that's a coincidence, which is my way of saying coincidence, just in case there's some confusion. It means there's a connection between the travail of prayer and what happens in the heavenly places. There's a connection between the wrestling that you and I do in prayer and what happens with victory and defeat in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not gonna put some kind of weird guilt trip on you like, like if you only all prayed you know, for more 17 hours a day, then there could be this many more victories. No, that's not, that's not it at all. There is something about that was happening in Daniel's life. He realized that he was concerned about it and it drove him to set his heart to understand, a very reasonable thing, and to humble himself and to, he was seeking the Lord. Do you think he was aware of all this stuff that was going on? I, I, I don't think so. In the same way, you're not supposed to be aware of that battle, but you are supposed to be aware of what's your life. What are the things that the Lord is stirring up in you? What are the concerns that you have that bring you to the Lord? Those are the battles he's calling you to. Those are the things he's attracting you to pray about. You're not all supposed to pray about the same thing. You have different things, different spiritual gifts, different interests in your life. The things that concern you, the things that draw you near to the Lord, pray them through. That's the encouragement. Pray them through. If the Lord sets a burden on your heart about something, whether it's for a week or a two or a month, it may be a coworker. It may be something going on in your family. It may be something leading up to what's coming up in Thanksgiving. When a burden is laid on your heart, follow it. Set your heart to understand, why is that there? Humble yourself before the Lord and, and commit yourself to pray it through until the Lord tells you to stop. We're, we're not told, by the way, in the beginning of the text that God somehow miraculously just said, Daniel, you can stop now, that's enough. It's the three weeks of bothering me. Cut it out. You can't bother God with prayer. Something obviously happened within him where he was like, okay, that's fine. And it says, verse four, showing back now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, he's out by a river. I don't know, taking a walk. And then he sees that there's been an answer or a response to this prayer. And that's when he lifts his eyes and looks and sees this either pre-incarnate Christ or this angelic being. These things are to help open our eyes, brothers and sisters. They're to open our eyes 
to the reality of heavenly and spiritual things that are happening all the time. As we speak tonight, as I, as I teach tonight, I pray that whatever's happening up there would help me to be part of the fight of the good fight. I, whenever you are involved in, in something, with, especially with, with ministry, you better be asking and praying that the Lord would do something in the heavenlies as you are here in the earthlies. Because the two are connected. Let's continue on. In verse 14, he tells him the purpose now from which he's come. Daniel had a concern. This angel, this angelic being comes and, and speaks with him, um, gives him you know, power and strength, and we'll read about that in a second. And it says, I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people. Who, who were Daniel's people? The Jews, right? I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen to the Jews in the latter days. This is all about the prophecy of what would happen to the nation of Israel. For their vision refers to many days yet to come, things in the future. And then he goes and continues, verse 15. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips and then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man, greatly beloved, fear not. Isn't that, it's one of the most amazing things to read in the Bible. Fear not. And you know why it's so amazing? It means the person who's receiving that is fearful. <laughs> He's just telling them, hey, you can't do that. That's all that fear not means. It's like, yeah, I'm aware that it's there. It's coming, it's creeping, it's, it's, it's on the verge. Here's what I'm telling you, don't do it. Now that's, that seems too simplistic, doesn't it? When you're scared, hey, just don't be scared. But there's an aspect about this that I think you need to consider in your own lives. When the fear creeps in and the command has been given, I don't know, this is, I mean, so many times in the biblical text, fear not. It's your chance to rebuke it. It's your chance to stand against it and say, I'm not gonna let that control me because that's the kind of thing that leads to your loss and to you taking a step down on the rung of the ladder of following Christ. You have to take those fear nots seriously. And even if all you can say is, Lord, help me not to fear, that's a step in the right direction. Oh man, greatly beloved, fear not. You hear the power of that? The clarity. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. Another one. Be strong. How can I be strong? You're only told to be strong when you're being weak. It's the same kind of thing. These are things that you have to grab a hold of by what? By faith as you walk and follow Christ. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Now, two quick little things because we've got to move on to the next chapter. The first is, do you recall in your life moments, times, 
where you have cried out in a similar kind of way of a kind of, I'm fearful, help me, and then the fear has gone. Or where you have been weak and you say, Lord, I need strength, and the strength came. It may not happen every single moment of crying out or every single moment of prayer, but I hope you can recognize that this is a really powerful thing to remember in your own testimony of following Christ, that when you cry out to him, when you ask for him to help you to not fear or to be strong, that what does he do? He, in fact, accomplishes that. And probably, maybe there even have been times, I was thinking about it this, le- this week, like, have, been, have there been times, and, and I realized there are times when I asked, he gave, and I didn't realize that he'd given because my life, my day just went much better after that, and I just, I didn't realize it, you know? I was like, oh, oh, he did answer it. I just, I got so caught up in like the, that the, oh, things were back to normal that I forgot to be like, thank you, Lord. Like there's, there's, there's stuff like that that happens all the time. Don't forget the times. Don't forget it when he has, when maybe you were tempted by something and he said, he said, dang, you gotta, you gotta just turn from that. And you did. And things got better. The second thing is that in, in reading through this, you, you probably notice there's a lot of interesting mixing of language as far as like going back to the issue of like, is, is this Jesus or is this an angel? He says, he says, here, my Lord, that sounds more like a Jesus response, right? And he doesn't rebuke that. But then also before the voice is speaking, and it says the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Well, a demonic force is not equal to, to Jesus, like Jesus, when he dealt with demons, didn't get into discussions. He said, hey, uh, get out of here. <laughs> he has all authority. So that's one of the reasons why it's kind of hard to determine within this text exactly who and what is going on. This is just my own personal opinion, and, and so please hear this with a grain of salt, that when we see and hear of like this, the first description that it may be a vision of Jesus, and that when the voice is speaking that it is Jesus, but that there's also an angel, but we're just not told in the text clearly when which is speaking at which time. It's my own personal opinion. Anyhow, continuing on, he said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And then he said, this is in verse 20, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And again, it's one of those things is like, if that's Jesus, then he wouldn't be fighting. Like, you know, he has all authority, right? Because he's God in the flesh. Anyhow, I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. Now pay attention to, who, to that mention of, of nations there. I put my pen here. He said, I've got to go back and fight who? The prince of Persia, right? Medo-Persians, that's who's who's leading the, the world now, who they are in, they're in exile and they're underneath their power. But then he says, who will come next? When I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. So we have a, 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 there's, a, a, a there's a kind of demonic power that's ruling over Persia and influencing things there. And then later, the next, the next big power on the block is going to be the kingdom of Greece. And guess what? They've got a prince too. It seems, at least in a certain way, that, 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 that the way the, um, uh, the demonic forces are organized is according to like region. 
as though they have like, hey, you, you take turkey, and, and, and this guy's got, got Greece, and this guy's got Persia, and then this guy that needs a lot of work, he's got Antarctica, right? They don't maybe put the biggest guy on the biggest things. So, again, as you, as you read through these things, these are kind of all the aspects that are kind of going on at the same time. But again, this, this shows us much about what we've read in Daniel because in Daniel has revealed through the prophetic thing that after the kingdom of the Medos and the Medo-Persians would come the kingdom of Greece. Now, there's one final thing as we read the last verses of chapter 10 into the first verse of, of chapter 11. He says in verse 21, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these, these being the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, these demonic powers, except Michael, your prince. And also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So this is, it seems like another angelic being who then is uh, working with Michael in, in standing up to Darius the Mede. Now, interesting last little note. Verse one of chapter 11, in the first year of Darius the Mede, turn back to Daniel chapter nine. Read the opening verse with me. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, that's Darius the Mede, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, and he talks about how this happened. I think what's happening in Daniel 11 is, is we're being told about the, 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 literal, uh, the, uh, the spiritual things that were happening two years ago when the first revelation was given to Daniel in Daniel chapter nine. Read with me also in fast forwarding in Daniel, in Daniel chapter nine two verse 21. He says, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, of course, that's not a man, it's an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Another, uh, another interpretation of that, that phrase, being caused to fly swiftly, is being weary with weariness. And we're told in chapter 11 that back in that year that he stood up to confirm and strengthen Michael. It's very possible that Michael at that time was kind of holding down the, the, the fort to allow, uh, to allow Gabriel to kind of swiftly fly off or with, with weariness from the battle and then give the 70 weeks prophecy to Daniel. It's just little details here. I'm just connecting what I kind of see within the text and it's just kind of a fascinating picture. All, all just to kind of help us see that these heavenly things are real and they are part of our daily existence. You, if you think to yourself, I, you know, I, I don't, come on, come on, come on, Jeff. Really, you know, when I'm in the drive-thru, getting the chicken nuggets, there's this, like, there's what, there's principalities? Yes. <laughs> I'm not saying they're gonna like, like, you know, yell at you like, get the hot sauce. You know, it's like, it's, there's stuff going on. When you, when you have a situation where you're having to make a tough decision, where you're having to decide what to do in the direction of your life, spiritual things are going on at the same time. Just don't forget and appeal to the Lord, right? Lord, help me. Help me here and help me in the heavenlies. Help me to follow you. Be, help me to be strong when I'm weak. Help me to fear not. Let's continue on to uh, chapter 11. And now, verse two, we already covered the, the first verse. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, and so now he's, now he's finally giving the prophecy. All that from Daniel chapter 10 was the kind of the preface and the leading and the backstory. 
about what he is now going to give in the prophetic account. And the same thing is true, and we'll spill over to chapter 12. Um, one quick little aside is that I'm not going to cover every single detail in chapter 11. There's just, there's so much, but I'm going to kind of do a highlight reel. And if you're interested to find out more details about what certain passages mean, I can definitely give you the resources that you would need in order to kind of seek those out. But it is fascinating. In fact, in Daniel chapter 11, there are probably uh, 30 or 40 specific details in the prophetic record that are proven out in history. So it's an, it's an incredible thing as far as, as, as proving the, 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 the strength and the veracity of the prophetic account. Um, I, I, I will say this also as we jump in. Um, a study was done about, uh, about there, are, there, are, there are prophecies about, about the Messiah. There's, there's many. But there was a study done that, that picked them and looked at it from the perspective of probabilities. Probability science is like, how likely is this to happen? And in probability science, um, if just, just eight of the prophecies regarding Jesus that, were, that, were, that came true in his first coming within the Old Testament, the, the idea that eight prophecies from different authors at different times, right, within the different prophetic record, the probability that all of those would be fulfilled by a single person is, is this probability. It's very unlikely. It's one to 10, I'm sorry, I did that wrong. One in ten to what is the? I wrote this down. Sorry, math and probability not 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 really my my strong suits here. Uh, one in ten to the seventeenth power. Now, what is that number? Well. Let's put it another way. The same person who did this study basically broke it down and said, let's pretend we took the entire state of Texas. Don't laugh at my drawings, guys. Something. It's pretty good. It's either the top half of a ghost or it's Texas. Let's go with Texas. TX, done. Fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollars where one of them is colored a different color. Um, two feet thick. Take a blind man and say, go find that one silver dollar. The probability that he would do it, that's this probability. And yet, he did fulfill it. That's the point. It's seemingly impossible that one person would do that. And that's just of eight. We're about to read a chapter that has like 40 things. So when you talk about probability, it's astounding. Let's read. <clears throat> Verse two, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia and the fourth shall be richer than them all, far richer than them all. By his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now at this time, Cyrus was ruling. We, we read about that in the beginning of, of, uh, of chapter 10, right? In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, I don't know if you guys have the, uh, the handout that I, I gave a couple weeks back, but there's a list of who the, the kings are within Medo-Persia. And indeed, after Cyrus comes, Cambyses, Smerdis, who was very short term, Darius, Hystaspes, and then Xerxes. Xerxes is the fourth. 
Um, Xerxes is the same king that you read about in the book of Esther. Uh, the same one who has, was a cohort with, with Haman. They ended up trying to, to kill all the Jews. So he's saying the fourth king, there, there will be three more kings in Greece. Um, at this time, the, the Greeks will, will, be, will be taking over in the third year of Cyrus. Um, and that the fourth would be much richer and much more powerful. And that is, of course, that is Xerxes. So if you want to just even write in your text, the fourth shall be far richer than them all in the end of verse two, that's Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S. And it says there, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Now, the mighty king in verse three, and I'm, I've got to go through this quickly because there's just there's so much detail. And we have studied these aspects before. This is actually a revisiting of the history that has occurred in the study of the previous chapters. This mighty king is Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, uh, as we see in verse four, um, his kingdom will be broken up and divided into the four winds, but not among his posterity. What that means is when Alexander the Great uh, dies or, his, or, his king, or he, he leaves uh, the kingdom, which happened, I think, when he was 32 years old, that his kingdom will not be given to his sons or to his family, which is, which is usually the case, right? When, I, when a king would die, they'd be like, hey, Johnny, here you go. But that did not happen. In fact, with Alexander the Great, um, there were uh, there were some interesting things that happened. He actually did have heirs that could uh, uh, take over the kingdom, and he was, he was he was hoping that they would. His half brother named Philip, but he was mentally deficient. He had a son who was born after after Alexander died. He also had an illegitimate son named Hercules, which is kind of a fun, interesting note. Um, and they were, those, the half-brother and his posthumous son were designated co-monarchs, but then the fighting among them eventually resulted into the murder of all of them. So what happened historically? The kingdom of, of, uh, of Alexander the Great, of, of the Greeks, um, was divided into his four generals. Now that's going to be pretty important to our study here tonight. It was broken into the four generals, and these are the names. And there's two of them that we'll be specifically focusing on for the rest of the chapter. Um, the four generals of Alexander the Great who received his kingdom were Cassander, Ptolemy, Seleucus, and I forget the fourth one. What's the fourth one's name? Da, da, da. There it is. Lysamicus. Of course, the common name of Lysamicus. Now the two that we're going to be really focusing on tonight are Ptolemy, who ruled the kingdom of Egypt, Alexander the Great, and the Greeks had overtaken Egypt. And so Ptolemy was given that area. And Seleucus, who took over Syria and for a portion of the time also the Holy Land, although we'll get into that more later. 
Lysimachus ruled Asia Minor. Cassander was in um, Macedonia. So our focus tonight is going to be on these two, and you'll see why in just a second. So if there's anything you need to write in your notes, really in your notes is really Ptolemy and Seleucus. But anyhow, it's still a fulfillment of prophecy, the fact that the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the Greeks, was divided into four rulers, not from his family. You see how already so many things are being fulfilled in, in the historical record that were pre-told through the prophets. Yeah, where are we? For his kingdom shall be uprooted for even, for even for others besides these. Okay. Also, verse five, the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. I'll cover that in just a second. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement but she shall not retain the power of her authority and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. You guys get it? <laughs> all right, all right. This is a thick chapter. Um, let me explain. From these four generals, I said again, these two would, would become of in particular interest. These two, um, let's, let's remove the whole Texas thing. You guys got that. You guys got the probability one in 10 to the 17th power. Let's all say that together. One in 10 to the 17th power. Awesome. I hope that sticks. Maybe bring it up at the grocery store the next time you're there buying tacos. Okay. So... You guys know how good I am at drawing. Here's Israel. It's basically like New Jersey. I know that's bad. Don't talk to me. Syria is above it, also known as the north. And Egypt is down here to the south. Those you know, kind of southwest-ish. So basically, and I should say this is Israel because it looks like an amoeba. So at this point, at that verse, when it starts talking about the king of the north and the king of the south, it specifically is referring to the Seleucids, which is the king of the north, those ruling in Syria, and Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic reign in Egypt. So that's the king of the south. Go ahead and write that into your into your Bible. This is this is there's no there's no question, and, and you'll see why it's very easily confirmed by the historical record. The king of the north, Syria, of the Seleucids, and Ptolemy, and we've talked about this before, but just to give you a little bit of of head, uh, foresight into where we're headed, this chapter is kind of a narrowing of chap of of of, of conversation. We start off talking about world history, uh, the the Greeks the Persians, then we talk about the four generals who took over just the Greeks, and then within that, that these two. And pretty soon we're gonna end up just talking about a specific character known as, eventually known as the Antichrist who comes from the Seleucids. And that person is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And we've talked about him in previous, um, in previous weeks and studies. 
And he is basically like a pre preview of what the Antichrist is going to be like at the end of times, at, at the end of the, the church age. So we're all kind of narrowing down. So right now we're going to deal with a little bit of the history uh, between those in Syria, the king of the north, of the Seleucids, and the Ptolemaic rulers in the king of the south, the north and south. These two groups warred against each other for about 130 years. And it's interesting that it's called the king of the north and king of the south because what's in between them is the nation of Israel, also known within this text as the glorious land. And what happens when there are warring bodies, especially back in this age, and they have to attack each other? Do you think they're all like, you know what? Let's be polite and go around Israel. No. (laughs) You guys. They went right through it. So who got the brunt of the catastrophes? Israel. So when you think king of the north and king of the south, you gotta think, why is it called that? It's because they're smack dab on either side of the history that would be happening in Israel at this time. Make sense? Okay, great. I hope most things make sense. I'm sure, I'm sure there's gonna be some details that kind of fly over your head. There's details that are flying over my head constantly. I'm, I'm, please pray for the heavenlies to, 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 <laughs> to affect the rest of the study, okay? Okay, so let me give you a, a couple, a couple um, focusing in uh, on a couple of verses. We just read one that was kind of interesting. Let's read it again, verse six, and I'll show you how this, this meets uh, the historical record. It says in verse six, we're gonna read this again, and at the end of some years, they shall join forces. So talking about the king of the south and the king of the north, they're gonna join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. And that's pretty common if you've read any kind of historical record. Usually if there's warring kings, they would try to make a period of peace and usually a daughter would be sent over. Oh, well, let's send over the princess of, of, of Denmark over to Norway and then we'll, since we're related now, we'll be at peace. That, all, that barely ever worked out. <laughs> I don't know why they kept trying to do that, you know. Anyhow, but it says... But she shall not retain the power of her authority, right? And neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with those who strengthened her in those times. Now, here's the history that matches all those details. There was a marriage between Antiochus II of the Seleucids and Berenice, who's the daughter of Ptolemy II. And when that happened, there was peace for a time because of the marriage, but this became unraveled when Ptolemy II died. Now we read in the text that she shall not retain the power of her authority. What's that about? Well, when Ptolemy II died, who was her husband, Antiochus II, I'm sorry, Ptolemy was the, was the father of Bernice, okay. When Ptolemy, when her father died, this, this man that she married, Antiochus II, put away Bernice. He's like, I was married to you for a while, but it was just to kind of appease things with your dad, you know, because he was a jerk or whatever. But now that he's gone, like, I will get, get rid of you. And he took back a wife that he had before, and her name was Laodicea 
But we read that neither he nor his authority shall stand, referring to this. Laodicea didn't trust her husband, Antiochus II. So guess what? So she had him poisoned to death. So he is now losing his authority. Do you see how the unraveling of history is completely connected to these like single phrases within the text and all this stuff happened? Then it says that she shall be given up with those who brought her. Now, after the murder of Antiochus II, Laodicea had Berenice, her infant son, and her attendants killed. So she was originally put away. He married somebody else. That person's father died. He got rid of her. He brought her back. She was mad about that for obvious reasons, right? I, I wonder sometimes if daytime TV shouldn't just take a look at <laughs> chapter 11 of Daniel and be like, let's just follow the script. This is crazy. This is great. So after Antiochus II was second, Laodicea, that, that woman who was brought back, she had Berenice, the former wife, killed. Her infant son, Berenice's infant son, killed, and all of her attendants killed. And after this reign of terror, Laodicea set her son, Seleucus II, on the throne of the Syrian dominion. Later we read about this issue of the branch of her roots in verse 7. But from a branch of her roots shall arise, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. Now, Ptolemy III, who was the brother of Berenice, which is, this, this is the branch that came out of her roots, and avenging the murder of his sister, Ptolemy III invaded Syria and humbled Seleucus II. Now, already, I can tell, eyes glazing over, you're like, what? The history lesson. Ah. Yeah, welcome to chapter 11. Every couple of sentences is this thick in the historical record. That's why I can't go through every single little thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through, and every once in a while, I'll say, okay, now this attaches to this piece of history, and we'll go on until we finally reach the culmination, which is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and how he was a forerunner or preview of the Antichrist. So let's keep reading. Bear with me. Bear with yourselves. Pray for me. <laughs> Pray for yourselves. <laughs> Lord, strengthen these people. <laughs> Fear not. <laughs> Verse 8 And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their gods and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north, verse 9, shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through it. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude." but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. Basically, I mean, like, to, to summarize this, really, it's like, and they went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for a long time, and no one would really won, <laughs> except for, for short periods of time. Verse 12, when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, 
and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, and also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. This perhaps refers to the fact of the Jews and the times of the of the of the zealots, and those who would be kind of the ones who would be eventually become part of the Maccabees and the Maccabean revolt. There were, however, also Jews who would who were not like fans of their own nation and were kind of basically mercenaries because not every Jew is good. You should understand that from history, right? Um, so there were also those who would join whoever was the leading force of the time and be like, oh, I'm with this guy. <clears throat> Anyhow. So the king of the north, verse 15, shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. And again, the glorious land is the nation of Israel. So they're going through it and through it and through it. And Israel is dealing with with so much carnage. Verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and with the upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Now this is another interesting little point, a little kind of point of focus in verse 17. This idea of them in the glorious land and setting his face and, 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 and giving the daughter of women. This was fulfilled when Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V of Egypt. He did this hoping to gain permanent influence and eventually to control Egypt. But to the great disappointment of Antiochus III, the plan did not succeed because Cleopatra was not faithful to her Egyptian husband. So it's just another interesting detail. Now, this is not the most famous Cleopatra of history, but this is actually a forerunner or a couple of generations before the famous Cleopatra and Antony that you read about in history. Moving on, verse 18. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Somebody obviously taxed Israel. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in an anger or in battle. And in his place, now verse 21, now we're really starting to kind of cook with grease, so to speak here. I guess the expression is cooking with gas, isn't it? Oh, grease. But I think grease works. Literally. Greece, you get it? Okay, never mind. And in his place shall arise a vile person. Now, just pay attention to this vile person. This person, this is Antiochus Epiphanes IV of the Seleucids. To whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Now, here. Antiochus Epiphanes IV. This is now our focal point. This reaching of the, to the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, and now this particular man. He did not come to the throne legitimately. 
because it was strongly suspected that he actually murdered his older brother who was the previous king. And the other potential heir of the, which is the son of Seleucus III was actually imprisoned in Rome. So when it says that he came in peaceably because apart from the murder of his brother, Antiochus IV didn't actually use terror in order to gain uh, authority or power in his, in his uh, rule. He used flattery and smooth promises and intrigue. In fact, it's told us that he flattered Eumenes, who was the king of Pergamus, and Attilus, his brother, and he got their assistance. He flattered the Romans, and the Romans, by the way, were starting to become the kind of that, the next ruling power. They were starting to become more and more important at this time. He flattered the Romans and sent ambassadors to court their favor and pay them the arrears of the tribute. He then flattered the Assyrians and gained their concurrence. Just something from the historical record about who this guy was. So when we read in the biblical text, right, that this man comes, this vile person, and he will come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Guys, there's all kinds of ways to take over a foreign nation, right? Most notably, we always used to think of like battle. But that's not always the way it happens. Sometimes somebody can sneak in with a silver tongue. That's Antiochus Epiphanes IV in a nutshell. Continuing on. With the force of the flood, verse 22, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province and he shall do what his fathers have not done nor his forefathers he shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. Verse 25 through 28, I'm going to explain as soon as we go through this. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. So against this, is, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the kings of the north. And he shall stir up his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. And while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and then return to his own land. Now this is fascinating as we move on these, these next verses. Antiochus Epiphanes had a lot of battles and his second campaign was, with, was against Egypt. And here, Egypt beat Antiochus with the help of the nation of Rome. At the end of it, uh, Antiochus and his kingdom were actually under the dominion of Rome. And there is a very famous battle and a very famous story that's told that the Roman navy defeated the navy of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And after the battle, a Roman general drew a circle around Antiochus in the dirt. So he's standing there, he's been defeated, and they have to kind of come to terms. What, what is this all about? He drives a circle around him in the dirt. You kind of imagine maybe on the beach in the sand. And he demands to know if he was going to surrender and pay tribute to Rome. And he demanded this, that he had to know the answer to that question before he stepped out of that circle. He's basically a power struggle. And from that point on, there was no doubt Antiochus Epiphanes took his orders from Rome and was actually under 
Roman dominion. In verse 28, when we talk about the, uh, the holy land and the glorious land, I'm sorry, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, it says this in, in history, that Antiochus Epiphanes was returning from Egypt after that bitter defeat, that he vented his anger against Jerusalem, which was already shaken because Antiochus had sold the office of the high priest and persecuted the Jewish people. And so he took it out on the, uh, on the Jews, and so again, you can see the king of the north, the king of the south, as they go back and forth, and all these problems are happening, and all these battles are happening, and every time they have a defeat or something wrong, they take it out on the land that they're traveling through. Verse 29, at the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him, that's the navy of Rome, by the way, assisting Egypt, and there, and he shall, he by grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. And that's what I was just telling you guys about. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And verse 31, really important here. And forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary forces, the fortress, and then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of of desolation. Now this is really, really, really important. Turning back to Daniel chapter 9, it says there of the 70th week in verse 27 of Daniel 29, it says, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. An end to sacrifice. And it's exactly the kind of thing that we see here. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, again, is a forerunner of the Antichrist, and what was being spoken of at Daniel 9 is the Antichrist at the end of times. So this is something that is, again, preceding that in history, and that's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He, going through the, the, the Holy Land, um, after all this stuff had happened, he actually set up an image of the god Zeus in the temple, and he demanded that they sacrifice to this image and later, he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig in it. And this, in truth, was an abomination which brought a desolate condition to the temple, for no one would come to worship it at all. In fact, the, the temple wasn't eventually cleansed until the Maccabees and the time of the celebration of what we now know as Hanukkah. When Antiochus IV attacked Jerusalem and did all these things, he was said to have killed 80,000 Jews, taken 40,000 more as prisoners, and then also sold another 40,000 as slaves. Verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Again, perhaps referring to the time, the, the Maccabees. Verse 33, and those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Verse 36 is a defining line. Even I've, 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 I've brought our attention to a number of focus places or kind of microcosms of history that has been fulfilled through this. But verse 36 is really a turning and change within the text. 
And here, the text is now referring kind of prophetically, not to the time of the present, of, the, of the, what was being described with Antiochus Epiphanes, but now specifically talking about the fact that this forerunner is now being described in its ultimate fulfillment of being the Antichrist. And I'll show you why that is beginning in 36. Then the king, so this is that same king that's being described. But notice there are some differences. Then this king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself. Very important words. If there's anything you need to underline in 11, chapter 11, this is it. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper until the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. Now, the reason why we interpret this passage as being a kind of change of, of time from the time of, of this, which had been a couple hundred years before Christ, to the time of the Antichrist, the time of the end, a, a yet future time, is because of this. We know from history that Antiochus Epiphanes, when he went and desecrated the temple, assembled and put together and had them worship not himself, but Zeus. He was a Greek. He wanted the Greek gods, the Greek culture, all this stuff. That's what he wanted to happen within the nation of Israel, with the Jews. At this point, we're told something very different in the text in verse 36 that this person shall exalt and magnify himself. And that matches exactly with the prophetic record we read about in the book of Revelation, about who the Antichrist is. In fact, um, let me read from you a, kind of, a, a, a couple of um, interesting passages that have to do with this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, you can either turn there or just listen. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, says this, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, as the day of the Lord, unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin, which is another description of the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition, who, and this is the description of who this is, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now that's New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter two, that tells us what the actual character and the actions of the Antichrist will be. Again, in 36, this is where this change happens. Now I, I, I spoke about this last week and I, I wanna make this clear for those of you who, who, who weren't here. Very often in, in biblical prophecy, um, we have this situation where there is a kind of, the fulfillment of it, there is a kind of a former fulfillment and then there is a latter fulfillment. Um, there's the first and then there's the second. Jesus had his first coming. He will also have his second coming. What's in between thousands of years?
And the same is true with prophetic accounts, that very often there is a first appearance of it, and then there is a secondary fulfillment. I spoke about this also in terms of the issue of the, the law being described as a shadow, but then law, and but Jesus being described as the substance, right? Again, a distance of time between them. And most often, what, what you can pretty much assure is that this time in between those fulfillments is known as the church age. This is where we're living. We're probably near the end of it. But the second fulfillment of these things we've had, the first will be after the church is taken away in an event known as the rapture of the church. Within a single verse, we can literally time travel, thinking of this as the church age, almost as though that kind of like, you know how they do in science fiction, they kind of like time warp, like, oh, if we bend these times together, then you then, you know, 200 BC can touch uh, 2200 AD or whatever it is, you know, they kind of, that's kind of what it is. Let me show you an example just to kind of help grease the wheels of this kind of thinking. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, a passage you've probably heard before. When, when Jesus was on the earth, he, he spoke of, of this, and when, when he was actually handed a scroll, um, this is in, in Matthew 3 and also in Luke 4 and John 1, actually. And, and Jesus took the scroll and he read from the words of Isaiah 61, and this is a very famous passage. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Have you guys heard this passage before? He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, verse two to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Wait, what? Vengeance? When Jesus came the first time, was he, was he the son of, of, of vengeance? Not at all. In fact, when Jesus wrote, uh, spoke and, and, and from this passage, he, didn't, he left that part out. Not because he didn't know it. It's like, oh, I can't remember. No, it's because he knew that sentence was a description of what? Not his first coming, but his second coming. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. A single verse, even with a passage that you may have read many times, and it goes on to talk about comforting those who mourn and this beautiful passage about beauty for ashes, the oil of joy. But again, within that single verse, what's, what's happening? There's a time warp because it's describing the fact that Jesus, this Jesus character has both a first and second coming. Jesus said he would come back to this earth at a certain time. The same thing is true with prophetic accounts. As you're reading through, you might be reading the first, as we have just been doing in Daniel 11. Everything before the time of Christ, two or 300 years before Christ. Why? To inform us about what to expect so that we would recognize and understand that there would be a later fulfillment that is that much more severe and to give us understanding of it. That's why it's so important to understand that difference as we approach verse 36. I'm just gonna read the rest of the chapter, jump into 12 real quick. I got 10, 10 and a half minutes. Woohoo! It's like cowboy time for, for pastors here. Get my mighty steed out. 
Uh, let's see. Verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now, there, I want to tell you, based on those verses and the understanding that this is a description of the Antichrist, some people have, uh, have thought that this issue of he shall not he will guide, regard not the God of his fathers, that he perhaps is of Jewish descent. Of course, that assumes that that is the God that is referring to from those fathers. So some people think that the Antichrist will be of Jewish descent. The second thing, that's not confirmed, by the way. It's just it lets you know what those in, interpretations are. He, he shall neither regard, the nor he shall she have the desire of women. Some people interpret this to mean that he's going to be, he, he's a homosexual. Um, the real, more likely interpretation is that in, uh, see, in what passage is it? In the, oh, yes, in Haggai 2.7, uh, there's a passage that talk about the desire of women, and it really has to do with the idea of that that women wanted to be the eventual mother of the Messiah. So more referring to he shall not he shall not he shall not regard the desire of women, or he shall not respect who the Messiah is, which makes a lot of sense, right? Who the Antichrist obviously would not. Um, as I, I was listening to a, a couple commentaries on this, so he said, he said, so if, if you're aware of these interpretations, so if you're going to leave this uh, class setting and you go out and, and look for the Antichrist in world, and you're studying world history, the next time you watch the evening news, you're like, we're going to look for the Jewish gay politician who speaks with flattering words. You're, you're probably very misled, <laughs> just to put that out there. But there are some that hold to, that, and it's not imple- completely impossible from the text. It's just a, you have to kind of squeeze it a certain way. And that's why it's somewhat hard to, to study and go through these prophetic things because you have to be understanding a, a, a particular kind of interpretation. Anyhow, verse 38, but in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. Now this sounds very much like the worship of uh, and who, who the father of the Antichrist is, which is the devil, right? And we read about that in the book of Revelation as the dragon, and then the Antichrist would be the beast. And he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act with the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now this is referring to the fact that he will be dividing the land of Israel, which is a no-no as far as the, the, in the biblical account. And now you begin to see, uh, if you think of this historically about when he's describing the Antichrist and when this will be, this is leading up to historically to either when exactly when the rapture of the church is going to happen and also when and just before the tribulation begins, which is what we're going to get to as we start the, um, the chapter 12. At the time of the end, all right, so that's like, it's like right, that, that's describing the time right before the great tribulation begins. Like there's going to be history happening that leads into it that makes all this stuff kind of more likely to occur. It says, the king of the south shall attack him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels, 
But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. This is referring to the great battles upon the earth that would happen around and near the nation of Israel, as the nations from the north, those coming from Syria, and those from Egypt from the south. And who knows, as you can see, there's a lot of nations that are involved here. And we are told towards the, towards the end of time that there will be nations kind of aligning with each other and, you know, in, 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 in great battle before the time of the end, before the time that the church is raptured, before the time of the great tribulation. There was already going to be a lot of problems upon the earth. I think it's really interesting to note also the end of verse 45. That after all this stuff of conquest and all this stuff of Antiochus Epiphanes and all that he did, the forerunner, all that is described here about, about the Antichrist, that after all that struggling for power and for dominion and ruling in the glorious land and, and putting himself as God, what is his end? Yet the Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. The end of that is very simple. He will be destroyed. And guys, I I think that's just a great example for us to just remember as far as how we live on this earth and what it is to be part of a church body and, and what it is to be involved in a very different type of living where we are here to help our community, where we are here to help each other, where we are here to study God's word and get help from him. There's just a ton of helpfulness that's involved in what it is to live as a Christian. But the Antichrist is exactly the opposite. He wants to do things his own way. And at the end, there's no one that's there to help. Let's finish out chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince, remember Michael is the prince most likely over the nation of Israel. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And now this is talking Jacob's trouble about indeed the tribulation, the seven years, the fulfillment of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy from, from chapter nine. A time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, and even at that time, your people shall be delivered. He's saying, there's just going to be this time of great trouble. But your people, he's speaking still to Daniel, your people, Israel, will be delivered in the time of the tribulation. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep and in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And I'm just gonna point out a couple of really interesting things from the, from the book of Revelation of what we know about the time of the great tribulation. First of all, we know that many of Israel will turn to the Messiah actually during the time of the tribulation. They will actually be tribulation saints. We know the church itself will have already gone up. But there will be tribulation saints, those who come to faith in Christ. And largely, from what we're told in scriptures, in Romans 11, for example, that Israel will largely be redeemed. 
it's again, it's not every single person. We're, we're, we're told of the 144,000, I'm not sure if you've read about this in the book of Revelation, it's because 12,000 from each tribe become like fervent followers of Christ from each of the 12 tribes during the time of the tribulation. We're told later that they're gonna be witnesses that are these two great witnesses that are gonna be kind of speaking and proclaiming to the people of the time about, about the Messiah. And the great thing is that it says, even at that time, this time of Jacob's trouble, this, this, this tribulation that would happen upon the earth, when the Antichrist is ruling and, and, and Satan has his, his, his way, although it's just for a time, it says everyone who's found written in the book. Guys, it's the same thing as with us. If your name is written in the book of life, what is that? It's those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Those who have called out and said, Jesus, I need you to be the one who saves me. I need your sacrifice to cleanse me. I need your blood to wash over me. And if you have received him, your name is written in the book of life. Isn't it crazy that a single decision you make takes about 30 seconds of time, maybe less, is enough to put you in the book of life? And then we're told this great and wonderful thing that it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. This is talking about a resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There are two resurrections. There's a resurrection of the just and there's also a resurrection of the unjust. No one gets to be like, oh, I'm just gonna be like, I'm, you know, there's this common theory out there in the world like, hey man, when I die, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just going on the ground. It's like, yeah, your body is, but your soul is eternal. The soul is eternal. It's not physical. It will reside somewhere until it's been given its resurrection body. And here we're simply told this great truth, though, though it is a hard truth. Everyone will be resurrected. Some to everlasting life. That's to go in the presence of God. That's to be his son. That's to be in the heavenlies with him. Remember that great, we've been talking about these great heavenly trials and these great things. Yeah, why do you think they're warring so much? It's because the effects of what goes on there has eternal consequences. And the effects of what goes on here on earth has eternal consequences. Some will be resurrected, and it says here, to shame and everlasting contempt. They're not just gonna be destroyed or their soul's gonna be somehow annihilated. Now this is talking about a suffering. And I think it's important to kind of point out at this point, because some people kind of really wrestle with this. Like, really, the concept of hell? The concept of a place of, of damnation? The concept of, of, of being in torment? Why would God do that as though God was being unfair? There's a really beautiful passage. I was referring before to C.S. Lewis, right? And that, that wonderful book that he wrote that I've already forgotten the name of it. What was it again? Screw Tape Letters, yeah. He's, he was writing about this because he wrestled with this same idea and maybe you have too. M most people have who have thought through these ideas because the consequences are severe. And he pointed out this thing that I always thought was so, so, so beautiful. 
He said, the people who are in hell have decided to be there. You're not sent to hell like as though you don't want to go. No, you decide in this life that you don't want to be covered by the blood of Christ. That, that Jesus, who he was, who he's told it to us about in the scriptures, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who died for the ungodly, us. You're saying that's not enough. That's not a good enough thing. And if you reject that, which is completely and utterly good on every level, you are saying by default, I choose, I choose to go to hell. No one is hell is gonna be in there being like, I really wish I would've, no, no, they've decided they don't want the Christ. To go to hell, you have to step over the bloody, marred, Messiah. Consider that. It says in verse three, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. I love this. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is talking about tribulation ministry. What a glorious thought is that, right? That there are those who are at this time focused on saving the lost just as we should be also focused on saving the lost, on telling people the gospel, that at that time there are people who are gonna be turning many to righteousness. That's such a beautiful thing that this would be happening at this time. In verse four, the book of Daniel now closes down. But you, Daniel, shut up the words. Seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And some people think that means about like, you know, the kind of chaos or, or kind of busyness of our culture, the fact that knowledge is increasing. It also has to do with the fact of, of, of interest and knowledge of these things of prophetic fulfillment, right? What we know now of prophetic fulfillment versus even then was so much greater. But the book is sealed, which means it will not be revealed as to what everything means until the time of end. And, and guys, I think we're, we're close to that time. I'm not gonna make any kind of weird predictions. Far be it. But Christ is going to come. And this, this great book of Daniel, sealed until the time of the end, I think you can see now why so much of this stuff is important for us to understand as New Testament believers. Because it reveals so much about the principalities about the order of God, about the nations that, that like nothing catches God by surprise. And the same thing is true in your life and mine. No trial where God's like, you know, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has occurred to God? That's the essence. God has never said, hmm, like he doesn't know that word, or oh, no. Then I, Daniel, looked and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. Remember, he was at a riverbank in the beginning of chapter 10, right, when he saw that glorious vision. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? All this stuff going on and the great tribulation. Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river 
when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, that's one year, times, that's two years, and half a time, that's a half a year. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. And this refers to the second half of the Great Tribulation. It's a seven-year period. In the middle of it, the Antichrist will break the covenant that he made with Israel. We covered that in previous teachings. And the last three and a half years is known as the Great Tribulation because things will get even worse. But you know this, as soon as the Antichrist comes and he puts himself in that temple and he says, I am God, you can mark it like a stopwatch. Three and a half years from that point will be the end. Although I heard, I did not understand. And then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And I ask you tonight, as you listen to these words, as you hear these prophecies, as you look at the, the probability of the fulfillment of these things, do you understand what it's getting at? Not just whether you understand every single historical detail. Do you understand why this is written for your benefit? It's to purify you. It's to make you strong in the spirit. It's to teach you the ways of Christ and to follow him and him alone with all you've got. And from that time, the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Now that's 30 days after 1260, which is three and a half years of a 360 day calendar. So that's like the three and a half years and then 30 days, which is probably the days of judgment. And then it says, goes on and says, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days, which is 45 days more in probably what is the beginnings of the setting up of the millennial kingdom. But you go your way till the end. For you shall rest and will arise. Now notice what he's speaking to Daniel here. It's the same kind of promise he can speak to you if you know Christ, if you've given your life to Christ. But you go your way. You don't have to understand every single detail. You go your way as you will tonight. For you shall rest. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful to hear that? You will rest. Despite the things that are in your life, if you know Christ, you will come to that place of rest. There will be rest for you. And you will arise to your inheritance. What God has for you at the end of the days is your inheritance. When you receive Christ, you become a, a, son, you become a son and a daughter. You enter not just a, a covenant of agreement, religious agreement. You enter a family. A family that will exist for all eternity. I don't know about you, but I just, even just thinking about these things now, it brings me peace right now. I can feel that. I can sense that. I, ha I hear the fear knots, and I think, reading this, I understand that. I hear the be strengthened as he spoke to him at the beginning of chapter 10, and I feel that. I know that. And thus ends 
the book of Daniel. Made it through three chapters. Let's pray. You're probably all like, yeah, for us too. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for showing us all these beautiful details about who you are, about the time of the end, the tribulation, about the fact that you give Daniel peace and, and rest and an inheritance. And those are the same things that you give us. And I pray for all these here, all these listening, that you would give them peace and rest to help them know that they've, if they've, they've given themselves to you, that you have an inheritance waiting for them that is far greater than anything that they go through now. Even if it's a big thing. And Lord, thank you so much that this is the kind of Lord you are. We praise you, we love you. We're so thankful for Jesus and your sacrifice. We love you, Lord, and we believe you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.